0: Hello, and welcome to Macro Horizons High Quality Spreads for the week of December 16th. Reactions to the December FOMC. I'm your host, Dan Creator here with Dan Belton, as we discuss our takeaways from the December Fed meeting and look ahead to January to give our expectations for the typically heavy issuance period. Each week, we offer our view on credit spreads ranging from the highest quality sectors such as agencies and SSAs to investment-grade corporates. We also focus on U.S. dollar swap spreads and all the factors that entails, including funding markets, cross-currency markets, and the transition from LIBOR to SOFR. The topics that come up most frequently in conversations with clients and listeners form the basis for each episode, so please don't hesitate to reach out to us with questions or topics you would like to hear discussed. We can be found on Bloomberg or emailed directly at dan.kriter, K-R-I-E-T-E-R, at BMO.com. We value and greatly appreciate your input.
1: The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries.
0: Well, Dan, recording this episode of our podcast just moments after Chair Powell concluded his press conference, I suppose we should start with the statement itself since we actually had some changes from the Fed in its statement. Walk us through what the Fed did today.
2: Yeah, Dan. So I think the biggest news of the announcement today was the implementation of some forward guidance, not with respect to rates, which the committee has already provided, but now they're offering forward guidance with respect to asset purchases. Now, specifically, the statement read that the Fed would be buying at least $80 billion in treasuries per month and at least $40 billion in MBS per month until substantial further progress has been made towards the committee's maximum employment and price stability goals. Now, when pressed about what this exactly meant, Chair Powell somewhat unsurprisingly deflected, saying that we would just need to be substantially closer to these goals before the committee would reevaluate these asset purchases. But big picture, I think this is pretty strong guidance. Now, we have two forms of guidance from the FOMC. And while the market wasn't really anticipating purchases would slow anytime soon... This now adds, I think, another layer of security in the minds of investors that the Fed is going to keep doing this until the unemployment rate comes substantially lower.
0: Yeah, I think the important point you make there is that the market wasn't expecting them to slow. So I actually sort of disagree with you a little bit here. I don't think this is a big move for the Fed. I understand the argument that you're making, but I don't think today's action really changed much at all. We weren't looking for the Fed to be moving interest rates anytime soon, obviously, especially after the last few meetings. But even asset purchases, I don't think we were expecting that to run down anytime soon. So... I get what the Fed did today. Powell at his press conference numerous times tried to stress how important and how big this shift was, but I just don't really see it. I think they basically chose to keep their tools. They have remained some that still have some effect. Wham extensions, yield curve control, changing the composition or volume of purchases. I think they left those in the toolkit They maybe wanted to give the market a little bit of a boost, just given the outlook for the next few months from an economic perspective, not looking so rosy. Powell alluded to that in his press conference as well, talking about high frequency data maybe looking a little worse now. We saw weaker retail sales. So it does seem like the economic recovery is starting to lose a little steam. And I think the the Fed wanted to do something while maybe still pocketing their powerful bullets. I think that's what they did. And I think you're seeing that reaction in the financial markets as well. Equities don't seem super impressed. We've gone from red to green, but obviously hovering around unchanged on the day. Same with credit spreads. Slightly narrower. But I I think that in and of itself is worth noting that on a day where we now can pretty much say with surety that we're going to get a stimulus program, it comes to light today that that stimulus program is going to include stimulus checks, not something we were expecting before. And the Fed delivers this, I guess I'll call it, dovish surprise. At least, you know, the market was pretty split on what to expect from the Fed today. So I would guess you would have to call this a modest upside surprise. All these things happening today and we have spreads one basis point narrower. What do you make of that? Well,
2: then you alluded to something that we've talked about a lot in our written work, which is that recent FOMC meetings have coincided with fairly consistent underperformance by risk assets, including credit spreads. Now, today we have somewhat of a departure from that. Like you said, it's nothing huge, but we do have a modest increase in risk appetite. And I think that's consistent with how I read most of Powell's press conference. He did mention some of the negatives with respect to the economic growth in recent weeks. He also said that while increased caseloads in recent months had not had a significant impact on the economy, that this time because of the size of the spike in coronavirus cases, it would likely be different in that. Q1 growth could be pretty substantially lower. But he did bring a fair amount of optimism with that too. He said people are now getting vaccinated, that this vaccine effort is ongoing, and that we're going to see a light at the end of the tunnel, and that somewhere in the middle of next year, people are going to start feeling comfortable going out and engaging in a wide range of activities. To me, that's the main departure from what Powell has been saying in other press conferences since the pandemic when he struck a more negative tone.
0: Yeah, it's a good point, Dan, and one I didn't, actually really didn't think about much until right now. He did seem more upbeat than he has in previous press conferences. It does seem like even at the FOMC, there is now light at the end of the tunnel. So maybe today's tepid reaction to some of these headlines, I mean, I think some of it is that today sort of met expectations. I think the base case of the market was pricing in a stimulus package of about the size we're going to get. The change in composition, probably not a huge deal. And I think the Fed, while it's an upside surprise, it's maybe a modest one. So I think we also have to acknowledge that the holidays are beginning to weigh more heavily on the market as the peak of the holiday season really draws into focus now. Volumes continuing to drop on a day-over-day basis. So maybe it's as simple as the holidays are essentially upon us now, spreads are Just above pre-pandemic levels, we saw spreads test pre-pandemic levels last week, and they sort of bounced off there. It is going to be an important psychological barrier, probably, that takes a significant push to get through. We tested those levels. There are some Brexit uncertainty, some stimulus uncertainty, and we, we got a little bit of a modest pop here. But now spreads have again stabilized and sort of started to trend lower into now the holidays that will likely sap any volatility for the rest of the year. So maybe it's just as simple as the holidays are here now, And we have a market looking forward to 2021, which we expect to be pretty heavy in supply. January is always the heaviest issuance month of the year. So maybe investors are sort of content now to just sort of wait to put more cash to work in the beginning of the year where you might have some degree of new issue concession there, or if not, just you know the liquidity of the primary market that maybe investors will just look to that and sort of have just shut it down now. So maybe we hit the ground running in 2021 and spread sort of just ratchet narrower, and we're not seeing a response today just given the seasonality. So I can certainly believe that. I do think that the majority of risk from December now with stimulus through the Fed past us, Brexit looking like after a little scare it's going to end up on track. I don't see much risk out there. So I can certainly believe that maybe spreads will hit the ground running next year with this year basically over. But before moving on to next year, Dan – just looking through my notes on on the press conference, there were a few things that stuck out to me. I mean, you obviously mentioned the main one, Powell's refusal to really put any numbers or further guidance on what, quote unquote, substantial progress is towards their goals that might precipitate a reduction in asset purchases. But aside from that, I want to draw our attentions to comments Chair Powell made towards the end of the press conference regarding their framework for evaluating financial stability. He described it as a mixed bag, which was the first time I've heard the chair use that type of language, and he even went so far as to specifically say that asset prices were perhaps a little high in his view. He went on to talk about other indicators of financial stability. Non-financial corporate leverage was very high, but talked about how rates were very low, and so companies were able to handle their debt service, talked about households being in good shape, but that they took a bit of a hit. But I actually thought there was kind of a lot there to unpack. And we'll begin with Chair Powell's assertion that asset prices were perhaps a little high in his view. That struck me as surprising. How did you view it?
2: Yeah, I don't think most market participants would be particularly surprised by the notion that financial asset prices are high. But Chair Powell's admission that this is the case certainly struck me as somewhat surprising. He did, I think, a fair job of explaining the reasons for that. It is largely due to Fed accommodation. He talked about low interest rates and the expectation that interest rates are going to be low for a long time. And the impact that that's had on various markets from equities to housing, etc. But at the end of the day, I don't think this is going to necessarily factor into the FOMC's decision-making process going forward. It's merely a byproduct, I think, of what the FOMC has felt that they needed to do in response to the pandemic.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. I don't think it's something that's going to be entering into Fed decision-making or policy-making anytime soon. Just I thought it was interesting to hear the chair of the FOMC say that. I don't remember him having said that before. He also acknowledged leverage in the corporate market, which is something we know that the incoming Treasury Secretary Yellen has long warned about how levered corporations are. Again, he said that maybe this is a result of low rates. Companies can handle this debt service. But in my head, of course, comes the thought, well, what if rates aren't low? Then what happens with that debt load? And Janet Yellen has warned of this many times. So it's something on the Fed's radar. I don't think it's anything with any near-term actionable Consequences or repercussions, just something to tuck away in case that ever were to enter into the Fed's decision making. I was also impressed with the chairman's honesty when he came to inflation. He talked about inflation and described it as something we had to, quote, be honest with ourselves about that inflation is just something that's not likely to happen in the near term. Despite all they've done, there are significant disinflationary forces on the economy. Here, alluding, of course, to aging demographics around the world, particularly in the US, talking about technological improvements and potentially even some of the Fed's own actions that are disinflationary, he acknowledges that inflation is going to be a very long time away. Again, that probably falls under the category that you described as the initial announcement, maybe not shocking to market participants. But I think an important thing as we look forward to next year, because an assumption that inflation is going to remain very low is something that's extremely important for our view in 2021.
2: Yeah, Dan, I agree. And I would just add to that, that given the Fed's new average inflation targeting, it also gives the FOMC a little bit more wiggle room if it does see inflation start to pop up. Now, Chair Powell downplayed the likelihood that that would be the case in the near term. But even if it did, that gives the Fed a little bit more room to allow it to run hot before it actually has to make any reductions in monetary accommodations. I think that's worth noting as well.
0: The chair also received a relatively interesting question toward the end of the press conference that Was paraphrasing here basically said, Can the treasury market operate without the Fed? And his response to it was that it was not a foregone conclusion that the Fed needs to be a presence in the treasury market. And then went on to say that it needs to be the role of the private market to soak up treasury supply. There's a lot of demand for high quality paper, blah, 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 blah. But I was just interested in the chair's wording there of not a foregone conclusion. You know, obviously there's a lot of speculation out there. I have my own personal thoughts on the matter, but. For him to use the words foregone conclusion, I just thought made it seem like obviously this is something they thought a lot about. And maybe even his choice of words implies that this is something they ultimately think might need to happen. It's just not a foregone conclusion. How did you interpret that?
2: Yeah, I echo your sentiments. The Fed has obviously had a pretty heavy hand in the Treasury market for the better part of the last 10 years. And it's a sort of interesting non denial by the chair that the Fed does play a significant role in the market.
0: Yeah, and it's also worth remembering here, like you said, a heavy hand in the market over the last decade. And then when they actually did try to normalize the portfolio, even just a little bit in 2019, Everything started to unravel, and it ultimately concluded with the Fed having to inject liquidity operations into the market in September when the repo market sort of blew up. I mean, yes, the pandemic is obviously the story of the year, but it's not like everything was peachy keen last year either. The Fed attempts to normalize just a little bit, and everything hits the fan. So just obviously something else to keep in the back of your mind. I mean, you look at Chair Powell's response to the last few questions. Inflation is going to stay very low. We might have to stay involved in the Treasury market for an extended period of time, basically. Like, all these things saying rates are going to stay very, very low. The Fed is going to stay very, very involved. And this is how you get to our expectation for historically low credit spreads in 2021, that this is the exact type of environment that yields an extremely strong yield grab as anyone looks for any type of outperformance they can get, particularly in the high quality space. And with treasury rates where they are, driving spreads to historically low levels. And I think what I took away mostly from the Fed's meeting today was just reinforcement that that's the right way to position portfolios ahead of at least the first six months of the year in 2021 before we maybe see a reversal of some of those trends. So that was my main takeaway. Looking up and down the list here at some of my other notes, probably not anything worth going into a great amount of detail on. Why not extend maturity? He said, you know, they're holding that. 13.3 facilities, he got a question. He basically said they're not planning on anything new there. That doesn't come as much a surprise.
2: He was also asked a question about whether the Fed might do a sort of taper with the WAM extension like the Bank of Canada has done. And you seemed to downplay that, saying that that discussion had mixed reviews by the FOMC and it was not high on our list of priorities. Not particularly surprising, but I, I thought it was interesting that he... Did sort of dismiss that possibility.
0: How did you read that? I read that more as just him trying to steer clear of saying they were going to taper at all. You know, I think WAM extension is on the table firmly for 2021. It's probably one of the next things the Fed does. And so I think the chair just wanted to avoid it all. Yeah, sure. It, it may be something the Fed doesn't want to do, but I think that was a non-starter. If WHAM extension is something they want to do, I think he wanted to avoid in any way signaling that they were talking about tapering. I think that's a bad word nowadays for the Fed to go anywhere near that, that T word.
2: Yeah, that's a fair point. I think that was definitely at least part of his rationale for giving that type of answer to that question.
0: All right. Well, that I think that about wraps it up for my notes on today's FOMC meeting. Did you have anything else before we can move on to a bit of a discussion on January supply? This will be our last podcast of the year. So I want to just provide a brief overview for what to expect from the supply side in January. But did you have anything else before we move on, Dan?
2: No, I think those were most of the broad strokes. So why don't we move on to some technicals.
0: Okay, that sounds good. Well, then transitioning to technicals, I guess we should start with our high-level view uh, as issuance as a whole. I think we talked about this a bit in previous episodes, but in a nutshell, I think we're calling for issuance to obviously drop from the record levels of 2020, but to remain pretty elevated compared to the years leading up to 2020, that 2015 to 2019 experience. In the IG market, that equates to net issuance of about 350 billion or $1.2 trillion in gross issuance. But we do expect things to be a little more front-loaded. Issuance in the first half of the year to be a little bit heavier, just given uncertainty surrounding, obviously, earnings in the first quarter, given the expectations for the virus to be pretty bad during the winter months. And then as things move towards reopening in the later half of the year, their issuance has slow down. So what is that view? How does that sort of boil down for the supply outlook in January?
2: Yeah. So we're expecting a particularly heavy January in 2021. Redemptions in January next year should be the heaviest of any month throughout the year. We're expecting about $106 billion in redemptions in the high-grade corporate market. January is typically about the second or third heaviest month of supply of the year, typically behind September, but we expect it to be probably the heaviest month of 2021 as corporations are raising cash for precautionary reasons Given the slowdown in economic growth and corporate profits that we're expecting in the first quarter of next year, just due to the continued spread of the virus. Another reason we're expecting heavy issuance in January is we have had significantly positive New Deal reception in recent months. So over the past five months, we've seen negative new issue concessions on average from August through December. And so I think issuers are debating whether or not to wait for later in the year to see if raising cash is going to be necessary given the spread of the virus, there's additional impetus to expect them to come to market at the beginning of the year, take advantage of this enthusiastic New Deal reception, and issue in January. Now, it'll be interesting to see what happens with New Deal reception in January. Typically, January brings the highest new issue concessions, so it could be advantageous from the standpoint of an investor. But given the consistency with which we see negative concessions, I think- it's more likely that we're going to continue to see these tight spreads persist into January.
0: Yeah, I'm with you on that. I think now transitioning to the SSA market, we tend to see in years past a lot of investors maybe keeping cash sidelined around this time of the year and looking forward to January to try and take advantage of a new issue concession. And that has become sort of this overwhelming trend where now, as soon as the year starts, any concession is jumped on. So I actually think you might find the most value in the first couple of issues of the year. These issuers that come out to sort of blaze the trail and test market conditions and maybe have to attach a little concession on there just to see how things go, that might end up being the biggest concession that you're going to find. That's the way it was last year, and I think that's going to be a, a similar pattern this time around, even though, to your point, I think we're, we're going to be talking about extremely heavy issuance. In the SSA market, the record supply in January was just over $50 billion in 2017. I think we're going to be very close to those levels, if not in excess of those levels. In the SSA market, we're not calling for as large of a decline like we are in corporate. Corporates were actually calling for gross issuance to say relatively similar to last year. And similar to the corporate market, January will be the biggest month of the year. So there's going to be heavy supply in January. But I think that there's a lot of cash still that's waiting to be put to work. And investors have circled up that January supply. So I think you want to be moving early in the year. So just to put some numbers on it, we do have our forecast for SSA supply in January at $50 I also want to say we keep an eye out on the Canadian provincial market. We keep those numbers separate in our data. I know a lot of other places it's sort of in the SSAs. We keep it separate, but I do think we could see the potential for a record in Provi supply in the beginning part of the year. Remember that the provincials, Their fiscal year ends at the end of March, so they actually only have three months left on their fiscal year, and they have funding needs. The funding arbitrage is also very in favor of the dollar market at this point. So we actually thought we could see a December issue. That didn't come to pass, obviously, but I think that the provinces will look to be in the market in a meaningful way in early 2021. Obviously, an issue from both Quebec and Ontario wouldn't be surprising. And on the provincial side, we're calling for a record year in 2021, and that projection is at least partially driven by – expectations for heavier issuance from some of the non-big three provinces. And by the big three, we're talking about Ontario, Alberta, and Quebec, who are the three largest issuers in the U.S. dollar market. Outside of those three issues – there wasn't a single issue in the US dollar provincial market last year. The last time that happened was 2009 and I don't think that's just a coincidence. You know, some of these provinces that aren't as often active in the US dollar market, they tend to have a bit of a larger investor relations effort when they're bringing a US dollar deal and those resources may not be there during times of crisis such as 2009 and 2020. But then what we saw following the global financial crisis, these provinces that typically have smaller borrowing programs, now they're suddenly larger as deficits increase as Result of crisis response. And those provinces look to international investors to sort of broaden the sources of funding they have available to them to help with that larger borrowing program. So, what we saw in 2010 to 2012 was actually peak issuance from those non big three provinces. I think we're going to see those coming back to the US dollar market in 2021, perhaps as early as January. So I mean, I think Dan and I have both said we're expecting very heavy supply in corporates, SSAs, and provincial markets across the board. But in particular, I think we're going to see very heavy provincial supply that might be an opportunity for investors to get some of that new issue concession. Dan, anything else before we wrap up? Yeah. So
2: just to put a bow on it in investment grade corporates, we're expecting about $150 billion in January in gross issuance. That compares to about $140 billion in 2020. And remember January of 2020 was a fairly normal year. That was before the coronavirus really spread to the United States. So $150 billion, a little bit on the heavier side in uh, gross issuance in investment-grade corporates. All
0: right. Uh, thanks for putting that forecast into numbers. And like I said earlier, this will be our last podcast of the year. So I think on behalf of Dan, I'd like to say from both of us, we're wishing you a very safe and very happy holiday season with loved ones. And we look forward to... Uh, reengaging with the customers again in 2021, where hopefully we're going to have a better year. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this podcast, both this episode and throughout the year, and we'll see you next year.
2: Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com slash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email us at daniel.belton, B-E-L-T-O-N, at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show is supported by our team here at BMO, including the Fick Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been edited and produced by Puddle Creative.
1: This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, who will rely solely on advice from your qualified,